You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Allie Fitzgerald Smith. This podcast is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We are broadcasting from the Charlie Zhang Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. This is episode two in a six-part series called The President's Club, which parallels an all-new special exhibit at the Nixon Library. Joining us this episode is the curator and author of the exhibit, Bob Bostock. Bob, thank you for joining us again. Allie, it's good to be with you again. Thank you. Last week, we talked about Adams and Jefferson, and we learned of their decades-long friendship, which became tumultuous when the two men began competing for the presidency. And that's something we see again in today's pair, Presidents Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. But like Adams and Jefferson, Taft and Roosevelt were friends long before that. Can you tell us a little bit about how their relationship began? I'd be happy to. Interestingly, both of these young men, and they were young when they first came to Washington, very ambitious, very talented uh, people. They both came to Washington, Taft from Ohio, Roosevelt from New York, in 1889 under the presidency of Benjamin Harrison. Taft had been appointed Solicitor General of the United States, the third ranking position in the Department of Justice. Roosevelt had been appointed a civil service commissioner by President Harrison. They both arrived in D.C. in 1889, young men really looking to make a mark on the world. And they both happened to live in the same neighborhood in in northwest Washington. So they came to know each other as neighbors and then as friends. In fact, they would often walk to work together down Connecticut Avenue. Uh, to their respective offices at the Department of Justice and at the Civil Service Commission. So they struck up a great friendship, and they became not only good friends, but two men who really admired one another, admired their intelligence, their talent, their vision, and their overall skill. Two young guys, you know, both kind of in their 30s at the start of their public service career, who were looking to make their mark on the world. They had a lot in common. Although one author, when I was reading about these two, painted the visual picture of of Taft, who was a very large man, and Roosevelt, who was a very vigorous man, kind of picturing what it must have been like as the two of them strode down Connecticut Avenue on their way uh, to downtown Washington to where their offices were. But it probably made quite a sight that uh, people probably stopped and looked at these two guys going by because in a way they were a mismatched pair in terms of their physical appearance. How about in terms of their, their personality types? Can you give us a sense for what they were like? Yes. Uh, Taft had the, had the temperament of a judge, kind of his entire life. His ambition from the time he was a young lawyer was to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And he had the temperament of a judge. Uh, not a very flamboyant guy. In fact, the exact opposite of the flamboyant man, um, of almost a judicial temperament, even as a young man. <laughs> Roosevelt, on the other hand, was a very vivacious fellow who always wanted to be active, always wanted to be out there, always wanted to let people know that he was in the room. I mean, he, he, was, he was somebody, when he walked in the room, you noticed him just by the force of his personality. Later in his life, his daughter Alice described him as someone who wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. 
he liked to be in the center of attention no matter where he was. And in one of his most famous speeches, uh, which is referred to as the In the Arena speech, which President Nixon liked to quote and used as the title of one of his books, in fact, uh, Roosevelt talked about being in the arena, being in the center of things and how it didn't matter whether you got beat up and bloodied and knocked down time and again. It was far better to be the man in the arena than one of the people who just watched events take place around them. So both brilliant people dedicated to public service and, uh, and both very ambitious, ambitious young men. And that ambition stayed with them really throughout their public lives. Yes, yeah, certainly sounds like an opposite to tract situation. Um, I, I think that's totally true. Um, you know, you could, you'd be hard pressed to find people who were, who on the surface, at least in terms of their external appearance to the world were more different, but they both had incredible intellects and uh, both had, as I said, real ambition. They really wanted to make their mark in the world. They wanted the world to be a better place after they left than it was when they found it in their in their own um, in their own way. So they they shared that they shared that not just ambition but also vision and uh, concern and and commitment to public service. So while externally they would appear to be two very different people in terms of their thinking and their intellect, they shared a lot in common. So how did that ambition play out in their respective careers? What did they what did they do in the Harrison administration? Well, Taft was Solicitor General of the United States, very young. He was in his early 30s when he was appointed to this very influential position. And he kept that job uh, for about five years. And then he was appointed as a uh, judge on the U.S. Circuit Court for the Sixth Circuit. And the circuit courts are the, are the layer, of course, right below the Supreme Court. So he was clearly a man on the go. And uh, he served as a judge. He always wanted to be a judge. He kind of hoped that the circuit court would be a, a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. But before that happened, he was uh, tasked by President McKinley after the, after the end of the Spanish-American War to go to the Philippines and serve on what was called the Philippines Commission. At the end of the Spanish-American War, control of the Philippines, which had been under the control of the Spanish government, was ceded to the United States. So we had to, the United States had to establish some sort of governing structure in the Philippines. And Taft went over to be part of the Philippines Commission and then uh, was named the Governor General of the Philippines. So he was, he was serving there from 1900 till about 1904. Roosevelt, when he left the Civil Service Commission, went back to New York. He served in the, in the Assembly of New York. He was the governor of New York. He was for a time the police commissioner of the city of New York. Um, again, seeking elective office, moving higher, higher, higher. In 1900, when Mc, President McKinley was up for re-election, his first vice president, Garrett Hobart, had died in office and the vice presidency was was uh, open, so to speak. Uh, it hadn't been filled because prior to the passage of uh, an amendment after the assassination of President Kennedy, if, if the vice president died in office, the office remained empty until the next election. Mm -hmm. But uh, McKinley, of course, was looking for a running mate. The party bosses were kind of tired of Roosevelt because he was so out there, you know, and, and he wasn't always following the party line. They said, mm -hmm. let's make him the vice president. We won't ever hear from him again. 
<laughs> little, little did they know um, that uh, McKinley would be assassinated in September of 1901, uh, just about six months into his second term, and Roosevelt then becomes becomes president and serves out the rest of uh, McKinley's term, and then, of course, is elected in 1904 as president in his own right. So the two of them rose very, very rapidly. Uh, Roosevelt continues to be the youngest man ever to be president of the United States. Wow, uh, I didn't John, know that. Yeah, John Kennedy was the youngest man elected president of the United States, but Roosevelt was only 42 when he became president after McKinley's uh, assassination. So when he becomes president, does he call his old friend Taft and, and try to get him to take a job? He does. You know, Taft is in the Philippines, literally on the other side of the planet. And uh, Roosevelt knew that Taft wanted to be on the Supreme Court. When a vacancy on the court opened up in 1903, Roosevelt wrote to Taft and said, I'd like to appoint you to the Supreme Court. And, and this is a great window into Taft and, and his not only his personality, but his sense of duty. He always wanted to be on the court, but he wrote back to Roosevelt, serve, and he was, as I said, serving as uh, governor general of the Philippines. And he wrote, things are at a critical stage here in the Philippines. I can't leave this job now. Uh, that was his devotion to duty. Here he is offered the thing he's always wanted all his life, but he says, no, I've got to do my duty here in the Philippines. So he, he turns Roosevelt down um, and Roosevelt appoints some or nominates someone else to the court. But then the following year, um, Roosevelt is in need of a new secretary of war. And again, he wants Taft to serve. So he writes to Taft and uh, Taft then agrees after some uh, persuading to come back to Washington and uh, take the position as secretary of war in um in Roosevelt's cabinet. And Roosevelt uh, said, or wrote to Taft at one point, he said, I wish there were three of you because then I could have you in the Philippines and I could have you on the court and I could have you in my cabinet as Secretary of War. That was his admiration for Taft. He, he really saw him as uh, kind of indispensable to uh, the government and to his administration. Yeah, he clearly thought very, very highly of him. So did Taft serve in his administration throughout the rest of, of Roosevelt's tenure? He did. He um, ret retained the position of Secretary of War. And then in 1908, when Roosevelt's uh, term, the term to which he had been elected, was coming to a conclusion, Roosevelt had decided earlier on and had announced, in fact, uh, very early in his, in his uh, second term that uh, he would only serve two terms. Um, George Washington had established the precedent of only serving two terms as president and then going back to private life. Washington established that precedent because he felt it was very important that the president not become a monarchical figure, you know, president for life. So that's why he retired after two terms. And every president after him um, never ran for a third term. So Roosevelt had pledged that since he had served most of McKinley's term, and then had his the term to which he was elected in his own right, that he would not run for re-election in 1908. So he turned to Taft, who he saw as uh, a worthy successor. Uh, he said of Taft, I do not believe there can be found in the whole country a man so well fitted to be president. So Roosevelt essentially anointed Taft as his successor. Taft wins the nomination of the Republican Party in 1908. Go on, 
goes on to win the presidency and is elected president in 1908 with uh, Roosevelt's active support for that. But interestingly, even before the election in 1908, as Roosevelt's term is coming to an end, and even before that, he's regretting that he pledged not to run in, um, in 1908 for what would have been seen as a third term. Roosevelt, as I said earlier, loved to be in the center of the action. And he really regretted having made that pledge, but he felt he needed to honor the pledge as much as he would have liked to have run in 1908. So he turned to Taft, probably the person he admired most in the, in the government and in the political arena to, um, to take his place. But Roosevelt said at one point, he said, I would greatly have liked to continue to keep my hands on the levers of this mighty machine, meaning the presidency. But because he had pledged to give it up, he gave it up. But he left reluctantly. So was his reluctance directed, obviously it was directed at giving up power, but was it directed at Taft? I mean, did he, was he still happy with his decision to, to pass the baton to Taft? Well, you know, he was through the election, he was supportive of Taft, but he started to think that, you know, I would be, I, it'd be better for the country if I were still president than Taft. So he starts mm. to look at Taft a little critically. Taft is not the same kind of campaigner that Roosevelt was. Roosevelt, very vigorous out on the stump. This is a time when candidates actually started running uh, for themselves. Vigorous on the stump, a real spellbinding order. Taft, not so great in public speaking. Um, you know, he was articulate and made well-reasoned arguments, but didn't have that kind of charisma and, and dynamism that, that Roosevelt had. So, you know, Roosevelt was kind of regretting, I think more regretting the fact that he was leaving the presidency than regretting his cho choice of Taft. But I think those two kind of melded together in his mind. So mm -hmm. interestingly, Roosevelt, within just a couple of weeks after leaving the presidency in, in March of 1909, leaves the country, goes to Africa uh, for a, a safari, and then a trip to Europe. He was gone from the United States for from March of um, March of 1909 until June of 1910. Um, off, you know, traveling in Europe, having this huge African safari, bringing back all sorts of specimens for the uh, Museum of Natural History and, and other museums totally out of the political arena. It was almost as if he couldn't stand to stay in the United States and watch someone else be the president. So he had to leave the country. But when he came back, um, partic particularly when he got to Europe, even before he came back and started to see more frequent updates to the news and stuff, he increasingly became uh, concerned that uh, Taft was not doing the sort of job that Roosevelt himself would have done. Um, which, of course, was an impossible thing for nobody. Nobody could have been Teddy Roosevelt except right. Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> you know, he, he was he was one of a kind. I mean, when they made him, they broke the mold. And uh, but but, you know, Roosevelt was, ah, you know, he's, he's not moving as quickly as I would have on this, that or the other issue. He's being too conservative, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So Roosevelt uh, really became um, very disappointed. And more, even more than disappointed with Taft, he he told uh, he told somebody two two of his friends after he got back to the United States. He said, "I could cry over Taft." And then he met with um, a few months later. He met with 
uh, of senator from Kansas and a couple of other uh, people from Kansas and, and the Kansas Senator Joseph Bristow after their meeting uh, said that we have been participants in a, in a historic occasion where a former president definitely broke with the man he made his successor. So Roosevelt made no secret of his really disdain for Taft's um, the way in which Taft was conducting his presidency. At this time, did Roosevelt do anything to share his reservations with Taft, with his good friend? Did he reach out? Was he writing letters to the president? Roosevelt made most of his displeasure known through other people. Um, it was it was not, you know, Roosevelt didn't really try and play a mentoring role with Taft. It's not as if he's, you know, would write to Taft and say, you know, Bill, old buddy, you know, <laughs> I think you should be doing this. You know, it was, that was not Roosevelt's way. I mean, he was as he was out there. You know, if he had an opinion, he was going to make sure people knew. So it was uh, a kind of a lot of sniping from the outside, mm. uh, if you will, as opposed to treating him as a friend who he thinks could use advice. Um, because again, that was Roosevelt's way. He he liked to be at the center of things, and he he was never shy about saying what he thought. And this got to the point where when um, 1912, you know, rolled around and um, Taft would be running for re-election, Roosevelt decides he's going to try and snatch the Republican nomination away from Taft. And he enters the race and, and runs against Taft uh, for, the, for the nomination in 1912. Unprecedented, just, you know, kind of astonishing, really, an astonishing betrayal of his friendship. And uh, a really divisive uh, thing to do to the to his party to um, to run against the incumbent president, former president running against the incumbent president. Astonishing. And, it, and the whole country was kind of caught up in this in this whole, you know, the, this was not just a political battle. It was a personal battle. And, you know, there was just all sorts of stuff going on. And the whole country was caught up in the. Um, kind of excitement of uh, Roosevelt uh, taking on Taft to try and get the nomination. And Roosevelt had been a very popular president, and so it, it divided the, the Republican Party. Is that right? He had been very popular, very well-loved, and it divided the party uh, significantly. Taft, of course, had the advantage of incumbency and control of the party for the previous four years. Roosevelt had lost that when he left office. And Taft was able to prevail at the Republican convention and defeat Roosevelt from the, for the nomination. So Roosevelt, instead of saying, okay, I tried and I lost, I'm going back home to my house on Long Island. He's like, okay, that's it. We're forming a third party. So, so he forms uh, what they called the progressive party, which was more popularly known as the bull moose party, because, you know, Roosevelt saw himself as a bull moose, a very strong figure who, you know, nobody's going to tangle with him. If, if, you know, the bull moose is a very powerful animal and uh, kind of the king of the forest in the areas where bull uh, moose live. And, and uh, you know, he, he's, he considered himself to be strong as a bull moose. So he formed the bull moose party, ran against Taft as a third party candidate. What did the campaign look like? Oh, it was an ugly campaign. It was bitter. Um, you know, Roosevelt, again, never holds back. <laughs> Um, you know, he's, he's, he's very enthusiastic in his denunciations of Taft. 
very bitter campaign, and the Democrats had nominated Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was a progressive. He, he, at the time, was the governor of New Jersey, and prior to that had been the president of Princeton University. And uh, so, so Roosevelt ends up taking votes away from Taft because Roosevelt was more popular than Taft was at that point, giving Wilson the presidency. Wilson wins with a, uh, doesn't even have a majority of the vote, as a majority of the electoral vote, but the popular vote, you know, like 40, low 40%. Roosevelt comes in second place and Taft comes in a distant third. Um, Roosevelt's performance as a third party candidate is the most successful third party candidacy in the history of the country. Poor Taft ends up with just eight electoral votes. He only carries two states, New England. Uh, it was just, you know, I'm, talk about repudiation. Well, what's interesting is that, is that Roosevelt was running against, you know, his hand-picked successor, which you would think would have been a reflection on, on, on him to some extent. Um, and yet the majority of the party sides with him. So it really speaks to his personality and his, um, his nature as a communicator. Yeah, the a majority of the uh, party organization, of course, sided with Taft because he got the nomination. But the voters out there, uh, you know, who were not in the smoke-filled rooms choosing who the, the nominee was going to be, they definitely went with with T.R. Uh, he was he was a very charismatic, very attractive figure that people really, uh, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, as America was coming into its role as a world power, uh, saw this dynamic, vigorous energetic guy as, as, as almost kind of embodying the, the, the energy that was driving the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. As opposed to the far more bookish and studious Taft. <laughs> exactly. Cerebral. Um, you know, he, he, was, he was very, very uh, heavy. You know, some of his doctors estimated he got close to 400 pounds while he was in the presidency. So, um, you know, that's that's not the image of a strong, vigorous person. You know, somebody who did, a rumor went around, but ended up not being true that they put a new bathtub in the White House and Taft got stuck in the bathtub. He was so fat. Um, it wasn't true, but that was a story that went around. So, yeah, the contrast between the two of them, you know, Teddy Roosevelt during the Spanish American War, charging up San Juan Hill, you know, leading the Rough Riders and, and Taft, you know, it's kind of slower moving animals, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> so this this campaign sounds a lot more, as opposed to our previous episode where we talked about Adams and Jefferson, this campaign sounds much more like what we, what we see and know today, um, especially with TR on the campaign trail. I know he, he was one for long speeches and he was actually shot on the campaign trail. Is that correct? It was. It was amazing. In, in 1912, uh, you know, the candidates, uh, and they had the previous several elections, went out and campaigned. Uh, they campaigned a lot on trains, what they called whistle-stop campaigns, where they would travel around on trains. And in fact, in the exhibit, and I hope folks who get to see it will enjoy this, we have a mock-up of the back of the train where the candidates, you know, the train would pull into a town and then, you know, thousands of people would come around and the candidate would speak from the back of the train the crowd and then the train would leave and go on to the next stop. So we have a, a, a depiction of a three-dimensional, um, let me start that again. We have a, a model of the back of one of these you know, 1912 trains 
that uh, people will be able to kind of stand there next to full-size cutouts of Taft and Roosevelt, and it'll be a great photo op for visitors to the to the exhibit. But getting back to the whole issue of campaigning, uh, Roosevelt arrives in Milwaukee. He's going to give a big speech at, at the auditorium there in Milwaukee. He gets into his car. It's an open car. He's waving to the crowd, and some guy shoots him from like five feet away. But to, for Roosevelt's good fortune, the bullet first pierced a steel eyeglass case. And then Roosevelt had a 50-page, 50 50 I'll start that sentence again. The bullet first hit Roosevelt's steel eyeglass case. And then Roosevelt had in his pocket a 50-page speech that was folded in half. So basically 100 pages of, of uh, paper. The bullet went through the eyeglass case, through the papers, and lodged in Roosevelt's chest wall. Uh, didn't hit his lung. If it had gone any further, it would have. So Roosevelt says, I'm going to give this speech. So he goes to the arena. He gets up, and he, he starts the speech. And his second sentence is, uh, you may not know it, but I was just shot. And he opens his coat, and you can see his shirt blood oozing out of his chest wound onto his shirt. And he proceeds to give a 90-minute speech and then agrees to go to the hospital <laughs> to be treated and gets back on the campaign trail very soon after. And he, he actually said, again, getting to the bull moose, he said, it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. And uh, went on and continued the campaign. Uh, you know, it's not like he had a big recuperation. He was very, very lucky because it, uh, the bullet lodged in the muscle of his chest wall. If it had gone a little deeper, it would have hit his lung, and that could have been a fatal wound. Um, in fact, the doctors decided that it was safer to leave the bullet in his um, in the muscles of his chest than to try and remove it. So for the rest of Roosevelt's life, he walked around with his bullet lodged in his chest. Wow. That yeah. is quite a story. <laughs> he was quite a guy. <laughs> <laughs> so we see why the Republican Party was so enamored by him. I mean, what a character. So he, as you were saying, takes a, a large portion of the Republican Party votes in the election mm -hmm. and ultimately wins. And is it, it's fair to say that, uh, is it fair to say that, but for TR's run, Taft likely would have been elected president? Re-elected? I think, I think that's a fair statement. You know, People could argue the other side, um, obviously, but uh, the division that, that TR created in the in the Republican Party and among Republican voters gave Wilson the the victory. Wilson only got in the low 40s in terms of the popular vote, which means between Taft and Roosevelt, they split well over 50 percent of the popular vote. Um, I think I think it's more than likely Taft would have been uh, reelected to a second term at that point. Uh, so, in a way, Roosevelt gave us Wilson, and uh, people will think what they will about Woodrow Wilson, his uh, his legacy and his record are being reevaluated even now in the current day. But uh, in large part, I think that uh, you can say that Roosevelt's insistence on running as a third-party candidate in 1912 is what made Wilson's victory possible. And it certainly changed the course of American history um, in ways large and small that we're still seeing today. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So we could, do, we could do a whole series of podcasts on how Woodrow Wilson changed the history, but that's not, we're not discussing that in this exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Roosevelt decides to run against his old friend Taft and both men lose. Rudolph Wilson becomes president. Neither Taft nor Roosevelt are president. Where does this leave their friendship? After the 1912 election, the friendship between Taft and Roosevelt was seemingly irretrievably broken. They didn't exchange a letter, a word, a meeting for six years until by coincidence, in 1918, the spring of 1918, Taft was checking into the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago. And while he was checking in, the, the desk clerk said to him, you know, President Roosevelt is having dinner right now in the dining room. So Taft hears this. He turns and goes immediately to the dining room where, Taft, where Roosevelt is, is uh, eating. And Taft pauses in the door of the dining room of the hotel, looks around, sees where Roosevelt is, and immediately starts over towards Roosevelt. And all the other people eating dinner in the room see Taft. And they see him coming towards Roosevelt. And the room goes dead quiet because the whole country knows that these two men who were once friends are now bitter enemies. So Roosevelt hears, you know, uh, realizes that the room has gone silent, wonders what's going on. He turns around and he sees Taft walking towards him. And the New York Times wrote an article about this the next day. And I want to just quote a little bit from this article because I think it really captures what happened at this chance meeting in Chicago. So it, it says that uh, Roosevelt looked up, saw his friend of former years almost upon him. He stiffened in surprise, then flung his napkin down and rose. He met Mr. Taft's handshake with one that equaled it. The two men stood for most of a minute, shaking hands vehemently and slapping each other on the back. The crowd went wild, and a cheer went up that startled them. They looked at each other and smiled and bowed to the other diners. And then after that, Roosevelt gestured to Taft to have a seat. The two of them had a conversation that lasted about half an hour. Uh, very friendly conversation, completely repaired the breach that was between the two of them. And, and Roosevelt later observed that, he said, we completely renewed the old friendly relations. So it was that chance meeting in the Chicago hotel dining room that repaired the breach between TR and William Howard Taft. And sadly, uh, Roosevelt would die just a few months later. He died in January of 1919. This meeting in the hotel in Chicago took place at the end of May in 1918. So while they repaired their broken relationship, they really didn't have a chance to build on it like Jefferson and Adams did mm -hmm. 75 years before, 80 years before, before them. But at least I think it, it must have been some comfort to Roosevelt and to Taft to know that uh, before, before TR died, they had repaired the relationship. And when Roosevelt died, Taft went to his funeral, uh, was seated right in the front of the, right in the front of the church, and uh, was, was the whole country, I think, was very glad to see that these two men who had been friends and then bitter adversaries had repaired the relationship and had, had come back together as friends uh, just months actually before Roosevelt died. A, a poignant ending, I think, to a relationship that uh, that affected so much of American history in the early part of the 20th century. Certainly. In episode one, we learned about Adams and Jefferson, and today we discussed Taft and Roosevelt. Both of these pairs were contemporaries whose careers grew in tandem with one another, 
in both circumstances leading to rivalries. Next episode, we'll learn about FDR and Lyndon Johnson. They had a different type of relationship. Is that right, Bob? It certainly is. And I think what people will find really interesting is that we call this exhibit the President's Club. Lyndon Johnson didn't become president until almost 20 years after Franklin Roosevelt died. But they had a relationship early in LBJ's career that affected so much of what LBJ did. And we'll look forward to exploring that a little further when we next talk. I can't wait to learn more about that next week on our third episode of the President's Club series. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. Our guest today was author and curator Bob Bostock. On behalf of the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Ali Fitzgerald-Smith. We are broadcasting from the Charlie Zhang Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nixon Foundation. Please tune in next week for the third episode of the President's Club. 